Well, good morning. Today, we've got a doozy. We are in Mark 4. Sorry, Mark 3. Mark 4 is next week. Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. And it's a hard passage today. Today, we are talking about unforgivable sins. Talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it is hard stuff. I have been praying that God would give me the words uh, to keep me from error, to communicate it effectively, and that they would be received. But it's still hard. It's meant to be hard. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk You walk all of us to the edge of a cliff. I want to show you, I want to peer over the edge into the darkness of that abyss and look down on it. And I want to show you how scary it would be to fall into it. And then we're going to walk away from the edge of the cliff. And I'm going to show you this eternal security that Christ offers. This unshakable, unfailing confidence growing security that Christ offers us. So the, tit- the title of today, yeah, The Eternal Sin and the Eternal Security. So from the get-go, I want you to know that the eternal sin is unrepentance. The unforgivable sin is unrepentance. And there are two species that it comes in. So I'm going to, I want you to have, a, by the end of today, I want you to have a healthy fear of these species of eternal sin. And like I said, I want you to feel the security of being in God's family. So read these verses with me. Verses 20 through, 20, through 35 in chapter 3. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house." Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? 
And looking about at those that sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's a lot in these verses. So I want to warn you, it's going to be a little bit longer this morning. (laughs) Bear with me to the end, please. Um, Why don't we pray? Oh, Father, I pray that you would guide us this morning. Use my words, God. Keep me from error. May they be true, and may our hearts receive them as true. Use me. Fill me with your Spirit. Fill our hearts with your Spirit that we might be fertile for your Word to grow in. God, may the end result of this message not be fear but security. Guide us this morning, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen. So there's this technique that Mark uses in his gospel that is completely unique in the Bible. It's called the sandwich technique. And here, today, we come to the first sandwich. So the sandwich is when there's one story that's suddenly interrupted by another story And then that first story continues, creating a sandwich. It has an ABA structure, as you can see on this slide. So the sandwich technique is actually very ingenious. You have two stories that mean different things, and then when you put them together, a third meaning comes out of it. So the bread means one thing, the meat means another thing. You put it together in a sandwich, you've got something new. So that's what we have today. It's called a a Markan sandwich. And we'll see a few of these as we continue through the gospel. This is the first one. So the first part of our sandwich. Jesus, again, is at home in Capernaum. As we've discussed, it's probably Simon and Andrew's house that Jesus has been holding up in or or using as his base. Again, the crowds are there. They're pressing in around him. And again, the crowd is an obstacle to the point that Jesus and the disciples can't even eat their food. So last week we talked about how Jesus appointed the 12 disciples. And it ended on the note of Judas, who would betray Jesus. And here, Jesus' family, if not betraying Jesus, they certainly come at Jesus with opposition. They stand in opposition to Jesus. But this word that we have in our Bibles that says family, uh, the Greek isn't so precise to mean family, this specific Greek word. It's more like those that are close to Jesus. So it could mean his family, or it could mean his close disciples. And I'm prone to think, given the context of this story, that it is both his family members and his disciples that are coming to Jesus, saying that Jesus is out of his mind, that he's crazy, or literally that he's gone berserk. They're saying about Jesus. They seem to have no idea who Jesus is. They certainly don't understand his mission. They're trying to seize him. Seize him. This word, seize him, is significant. Seize him. It means to gain mastery over, to gain power over, to control, to bind, to bind. They're trying to bind Jesus in some sense. Remember that. So what they are doing, though, ultimately is they they would assert their will over the will of Jesus. 
They believe their will is more important, is better, is more good than the will of Jesus. And they would subdue him. They would bind him. So it becomes clear that proximity to Jesus, even blood relation, is no substitute for allegiance to Jesus in faith and in following. And then all of a sudden, our story is interrupted. We're left hanging there, and we come to the middle of the sandwich. And there's another group that thinks Jesus to be out of his mind. Let's read verse 22 again. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So we've seen the scribes before, right? They've opposed Jesus before. They were the religiously elite, the highly educated. They had huge followings. They were something like religious celebrities in, in Palestine. And so when the scribes show up this time, this time there's something different about how they're coming to Jesus. Every other time, they're asking questions, they're probing, they're trying to trip Jesus up. But this time, they come with bold-faced accusations, open opposition. And Mark notes that they came down from Jerusalem. This, too, is significant. This means that they are coming, representing the official view of Jerusalem, of the religious Jewish establishment. It would be like saying that delegates have come from Washington and publicly condemned Billy Graham and his ministry. Washington's official position would be in opposition to Billy Graham. And Billy Graham's day's preaching would probably be limited, or at least his, his uh, who can hear him. So in a similar way, these these scribes came representing the official view of the Jewish religious establishment. Jerusalem is no longer curious about who Jesus is. They They have formed a position against him. Jesus is in the crosshairs of Jerusalem from this point forward. See, the scribes knew that the only one capable of casting out demons, the only one who had the power to cast out demons and gain mastery over the demonic realm, is God himself. The scribes are convinced that Jesus is not God. He doesn't look like God. And the only logical conclusions that they're able to draw is that Jesus is possessed by Satan. It's by the wicked power of Satan that he casts out demons. But there's an admission in this by the scribes. The scribes cannot deny the fact that Jesus is powerful. They're admitting power in Jesus. And how could they deny it? Lepers are clean and paralytics walk. Sick are healed. The demon possessed are freed. So the power of Jesus is indisputably real. They're not even trying to dispute that. But that power, that those miraculous works, these visceral acts of God, do not produce faith, clearly. Yes, his his works are evidence of the presence of God, but that evidence is to cause those who witness that power to make a decision about who Jesus is. 
You see the acts of God and you need to ask, what does he mean to you? That's what the intention of the healing was, is the casting out of demons and so on. It's so that we might see the power and see Christ as God, as our friend, as our Savior. But these scribes don't see it. They do not see Jesus as a friend. They see Jesus as a threat. And they call him Beelzebub. So a word about Beelzebub. Baal was a Syrian god who the Israelites poured after for centuries. And Baal, when you take Baal and you add some words to it, you get Beelzebub. And what Beelzebub means is Baal the prince, Baal the master of the home, or the master of the dynasty, or the master of the kingdom. Home, dynasty, kingdom, it's, it's the same. It's a name that the scribes are using, equating it with, Jesus, with, sorry, with Satan. Beelzebub and Satan are used in the same. And Jesus says, what Jesus says next, it sheds light on his intention to ransack the strong man's house, the strong man Satan's house, And he responds with two succinct parables. In the first one, he is destroying the logic that the scribes have been using, the foolish logic that the scribes have using. Let's look at verses 23, halfway through that verse to 26. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So again, the logic of the scribes was was to say that only God can cast out demons. Jesus does not appear to be God. Therefore, Jesus is not God, and he's using some other source of power, namely the power of Satan. So in this first parable, Jesus is using tight logic to eviscerate the logic of the scribes. Jesus' mission is in utter, total opposition to the mission of Satan and and his demons. Satan would not oppose himself. He would destroy himself if he did that. Therefore, what Jesus is, is saying, therefore, Jesus' power cannot come from Satan, but must come from the only other source of power capable of doing that. God himself. But the religious establishment could not believe that. Otherwise, they would have to heed Jesus' words. They'd have to change their worldview. They would have to believe him. They have to change what makes them significant. They would have to repent. The scribes' reasoning betrays the fact that even though they are the most religiously educated people on the face of the planet, they have no idea who God is. And before we look at Jesus' next short parable... Look at what Isaiah says some 400 years before Christ. 
Isaiah 49, verses 24 to 26. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The warriors, the fierce in this passage, in this prophecy, are Satan and his demons. God declares that he will plunder Satan's house by taking his captives, the children of men. And when God does this, he is doing it so that we see him, so that the scribes see him, so that Israel sees him as Savior and Redeemer. Okay, with that Old Testament prophetic understanding in our minds, knowing that the scribes knew these words, let's read verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now when you hear Jesus' words, after hearing that prophecy from Isaiah, you get some clarity. You get clarity on Jesus' self-understanding about who he is. He knows Himself to be the Son of God, the God-man, God in the flesh. He knows He is the fulfillment of these verses from Isaiah. And He realizes that He must do something for humanity before He can do something to humanity. He must plunder, He must bind the strong man first. Before He can restore the image of God to humanity, He must liberate humanity from the power of evil. So Jesus does something for the paralytic when he forgives his sins. And then Jesus does something to the paralytic when he heals him. First forgiveness, then healing. First binding the strong man and then setting free the captives. Jesus has come to invade, to bind the strong man and plunder his house. And what Jesus is doing is most certainly a play on words here, on Beelzebub. They say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub, a name meaning master of the house or the kingdom. And Jesus is saying that he has come to ransack that house, to take from it the children of men. Take them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, eternal prison to eternal freedom. And Jesus is saying that his kingdom cannot coexist with the kingdom of Satan. Some verses, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Ephesians 5, 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So if you have come to faith in Jesus, if you trust in him for your eternal life, if you hope in his promises, 
you take joy in him, then what that means is you are plundered. Jesus has plundered you from the house of Satan and brought you into his house. He's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light. Now, does Satan have any power to steal you back? No. You are his. It is not possible to be stolen away from Jesus. Remember this. Remember this. Because what comes next is terrifying, horrifying. I'll read verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. Certainly is one of the most controversial and feared passages in the whole Bible. And it is the real meat of our sandwich. So there are many theories on what the unforgivable sin is, many crazy theories, honestly, and very unhelpful theories. So there's a lot of fear and insecurity that swirl around these passages, and oftentimes they induce guilt or or worry, anxiety in us. Because people think or, or fear that they have in some way committed the unforgivable sin. Well, I hope to to take you to that cliff edge. Like I said, I want to show you those two species of unforgivable sins. And I want you to feel the fear of them. And then let you feel the security of being in God's family, remembering that nobody can take you from the hand of Christ. So what is the eternal sin? The unforgivable sin? Unrepentance. Unrepentance. Unrepentance means that you believe there is nothing wrong with your thoughts or your actions. You do not seek forgiveness and you are not remorseful. It means that you do not believe that God has any say over your life. And you can determine for yourself how you live. So you can determine what is good and what is evil. Unrepentance is pride in yourself. Unrepentance is independence or self-dependence. And there are two species of that in our passage, in our sandwich. The first species of unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is looking at Jesus, at the works of the Holy Spirit, and calling them evil. Now when the scribes say that Jesus is possessed by, saying, by Satan, when in fact Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, they are calling God the Spirit an unclean spirit, an evil spirit. They are calling what is supremely good supremely evil. And listen to the words of Isaiah 5, 
verses 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Satan was the one who stood in the presence of God, the supreme good, the source of all joy, and he despised it. After looking God in the face, Satan said, evil, be my good. The scribes were looking at the supremely good Savior of the world, looking at him in the face and calling him evil. They effectively speak the same words that Satan does. Evil, be my good. The irony is that they say Jesus is an agent of Satan when in fact they are agents of Satan. There's something to understand about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is not a blasphemy that is, that is uttered in a moment. This is a position of the heart rather than a few terrible words. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a lifelong, unrepentant position that Jesus and the works of the Holy Spirit are evil. A life entirely lived like this is unforgivable. There's nothing more wicked than basing your life on the belief that the good works of God are evil. And he calls this unrepentant rejection an eternal sin. It's eternal because it is consistently and constantly chosen. And note that this warning is given to the religious. To the religious. The religious have a greater propensity, in fact, to commit this sin. People think rather people who think that they are spiritual or moral or religiously learned in the church or not are prone to self-righteousness and pride. And so how does that flesh out? What does that look like? Jesus had a lot to say about what that looks like. They live like they're good enough. They know their stuff. They read their Bibles. They go to church every week. They say long prayers. Perhaps they are moralists or spiritual. And they believe they do a lot of good for people, but they don't hurt anybody. So they're good enough. But when God, when the good of God threatens their religious standing or their significance, or their identity, they get angry and call those things evil. In our day, they might say that the truth of God is ignorant, which is the same thing as calling it evil. And this position is maintained unrepentantly for their whole life. The story is a sober warning to the religious and to the moral and to the spiritual The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to call what is good evil and what is evil good is an eternal sin. In our day, 
think about the way that people in the church and people in society have said that the good way that God has made things like marriage is evil or is ignorant. It's calling what is good evil and what is evil good. And that's just an obvious one. But this meaning grows when we consider that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is sandwiched between a story about Jesus, those who are closest to Jesus. And this is really, in my mind, where things get scary. Because the opposition from the religious leaders is obvious. It's it's in your face. The opposition from Jesus, or sorry, the opposition from Jesus' family and followers is a little more subtle. Let's read verses 31 and 32. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. In the first part of our sandwich, Jesus' family and disciples are trying to seize Jesus, trying to control him, they're trying to bind him, so that he cannot go about his mission as Jesus intends. The last part of our sandwich, when that first story continues, his family is seeking him. This isn't like, hey, where'd you go? Jesus' family assumes that they have certain familial rights that Jesus should be obligated to follow. They're trying to control Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to stop his mission. They think he's crazy. Theirs is an attempt to control Jesus, to assert their will over the will of Christ. So when we put all of this together, the sandwich together, we find our third meaning. The second species of eternal sin, unforgivable sin, is to assert your will over the will of Jesus. This is not something that's done in a moment. It is done through lifelong unrepentance. Living like your will is a greater good than the will of the Holy Spirit, than the will of Christ, the will of the Father. Living like that is an unforgivable, damnable sin. This is a warning to those who are closest to Jesus. It is a warning to his family and his followers. Do you know what that means? It is a warning to every single one of us. Do not write them off because millennia separate you. There's so many people in church, people who are supposed to be close to Jesus, that subtly behave as if they know better than Christ. Think about, I'm going to read some passages. These 
are passages for Christ's disciples. Listen to what he says to his disciples. Do not lay for your... Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But how many churchgoers live like their treasures are on earth? They pour their resources into houses and vacations and toys. They spend themselves to get the affections of people. To live like the things on earth are better than what Christ offers is an eternal sin. To say that the treasures you can get here are better than the treasures that God has waiting for you in glory is an eternal sin. So look at this warning sign and turn around and repent. Jesus also says in Luke 9, Luke 9.26 For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory. You can see it in this verse. To not speak about Jesus is to be ashamed. Is to behave as if your will, your fearful will, is better or more important than the will of Christ for your life. To do this for your whole life is unforgivable. And Jesus will be ashamed of you at the end of your silent life. There are so many warnings like this throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament. But Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31, are perhaps the most striking. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, of the living God. When a person hears the gospel, and continually asserts their own will over the will of Christ, they go on sinning deliberately. They they trample underfoot the Son of God. They outrage the Spirit of grace, or they blaspheme the Holy Spirit with their life. For this There is no longer a sacrifice for sins, 
There is no forgiveness. This is an eternal sin. So again, the second species of eternal sin is this. It is an eternal sin to assert your will over the will of Jesus unrepentantly for the duration of your life. A life entirely lived like this is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And how do I know that these species of eternal sins, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and asserting your will over the will of Jesus, how do I know that these are not just momentary things, but a lifetime of unrepentance? Precisely because this is a warning. Because a warning means that you have a chance to change your behavior You would not warn somebody who has fallen off a cliff, stay back from the edge. It's too late for that. The warning comes too late. A warning means that you have a chance to change your behavior. While you breathe, you have a chance to change your behavior. So these verses about the eternal sins, about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They are a warning to the religious and to the follower of Jesus alike. It means they are primarily warnings to people that we find in church. The consequence of not heeding these warnings is horrifying. Words do not express how horrifying it is to look into the abyss of hell and see what unrepentance purchases. But this warning is not a condemnation. It is for your good. It is for your protection. It is because God loves you. This is not a condemnation. This is not a reason for anxiety. God loves his children. I love my children, and I will warn them before they run into the middle of the road. I will warn them before they run off a cliff. I want them to know what happens if they fall off a cliff. I want them to know what happens if they run in the street. But I will warn them to keep them from doing that. So this is not a condemnation or a reason for fear. A healthy fear of the road of falling, but not to live in fear. And let's read verses 33 through 35 again. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus looks at those that are circled around him. Those that have come to him, that come to listen and learn. And he says, here are my mother and brothers. All those that do the will of God are the brothers and sisters of Christ. If you do the will of God, If you submit to the will of God, that means you have been brought in to the family of God. That means that you are a child of God. Perhaps there's been a moment where you were squirming in your seat 
maybe feeling a certain desperation. Because every single one of us, myself included, have committed the sins I've previously described. If I have not said that the good of God is evil, then certainly at times my actions have said it. I have liked treasures on earth. I have really liked them. I have been too ashamed to speak at times. I've even had times where my heart was so hard I didn't want to repent. And there are loads of times where I do not do the will of God. I do my will. Does that mean that I am guilty of the eternal sin? No. It doesn't mean that. Not for me, not for you. We need to understand what repentance is. Remember Jesus' words that we looked at the beginning of the series from Mark 1.15. He said, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is linking repentance with believing in the gospel. The gospel is where we find repentance. Repentance means that you know that your ways were wrong. That they were sinful. Repentance means that you know, that you believe, you live like the gospel is true. The gospel says that Jesus perfectly lived according to the will of God. And Jesus offers you, he offers you his perfect life. The gospel says that Jesus died for your sins. Your sins have been paid for. Repentance means that you believe in this, in this gospel. You believe that the will of God is the greatest good, and you trust that his will, revealed in the gospel, is is true, is what you will live by, is what you will die by. And you will no longer trust in yourself. Repentance is not living perfectly. It is not that. Repentance is trusting in Christ to have lived perfectly for you. And to prove it, Jesus' mother and brothers who came opposing him, Mary was there when Christ was crucified. Mary was there to see Christ's empty tomb. Mary was there when the Holy Spirit fell. James, the brother of Jesus, became the great leader of the church in Jerusalem. These people were committing a sin that if it went on unrepentantly would have led to their damnation. It would have been unforgivable. But these people committing the sins became followers of Christ. Legends of our faith. The scribes who came in open opposition. We know in in, in Acts that many scribes and Pharisees and priests became followers of Jesus. Repentance is available as long as you breathe. No matter what sins you may have committed, Jesus forgives. Look back at verse 28, the beginning of verse 28. All sins will be forgiven men, even blasphemies. 
If you repent and believe in the gospel, then every sin, every hardness of heart will be forgiven. Every word that you utter will be forgiven. If you repent and believe in the gospel, you trust that Jesus has accomplished the will of God for you. You hope that in the life that he promises. And then you live like it's true. So coming to Jesus for these things means that you are a part of the family of God. To believe in the gospel, to trust that Christ's perfect life is being applied to you means that you are in the family of God. John 6, 37 through 39. And all that the Father give me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. How many are Christ going to lose? None. How many whose salvation will be lost? None. Christ holds you. If you come to Jesus, you are Christ's forever. No one can snatch you out of his hand. If God is for you, who can be against you? No one, not even your sins. You cannot commit the unforgivable sin if you are Christ's because he keeps you from that. But the warning is still there for your good. If you ever feel worry about having committed the unforgivable sin, then you've just proven that you've not committed the unforgivable sin. Because if you had, you wouldn't care. You'd go on living just how you're living, unrepentantly, till the day you die. Worry, by necessity, means that you have not fallen off the cliff. To worry would be like standing on the edge of the cliff and worry that you're falling. It's insane. Worry means that you have not fallen off the edge of the cliff. His kind warning is meant to show us that sometimes in our lives, we're not doing the will of God, and we're approaching the edge, and his warning is there to say, turn around, go back. Go back into the loving arms of the Father. You know, there is absolutely no record in the Bible of anybody seeking forgiveness and being rejected. It is kind and loving for Christ to have given us this warning, to let us know that unrepentance is unforgivable. God warns us because he loves us and because he wants to to, to us to walk securely in him as members of his beloved family. So if there's ever anything that is pushing you toward the edge, look at the warning and repent. Believe in what Christ has done for you. Embrace his love for you and live in it far from the edge of the cliff. You were made for love, not for fear. But when, love, but when loving what is evil and, and living like you 
know better than God? When these things begin to creep into your life, then let the fear push you back into his loving arms. He wants to hold you securely in his love, eternally, forever. And he will. Let's pray. Oh God, these are hard things. These are hard things and hard for us to understand. But I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that it would not induce fear in us, but we would see your loving arms, your loving word, even in the scariness of the unforgivable sin. And if nothing else, we would be driven into your arms of security where your love is poured out on your children, where you will let nothing take us away from you. And God, if there are any in this room that are not a part of your family and are looking over the edge of the cliff, how would you intervene and save them, Father? Would you make the gospel come alive? Give us all hearts that live in continual repentance, looking to do your will. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.